You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. If you guys uh, want to take your Bibles, you can open up to Romans chapter 9. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, will you lift up your hand and we will get uh, Bibles to you. We also have large print Bibles. And so if you prefer large print, just uh, wiggle your finger or something like that to distinguish yourself. But I know you guys are getting lazy. We've got the presentation software and all that. Now your Bible's apps on your phones. So don't forget about paper products, okay? Paper Bibles are still very useful. (laughs) We're in uh, Romans chapter 9, and we're going to read verse uh, 6 through 33. Why don't you guys go ahead and stand and get some blood flowing through your legs and stretch out a little bit uh, before we dive into the study this morning. It says this, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they children because they are the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he called not of the jews only but also of the gentiles as he says in hosea i will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. Isaiah also cried out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, 
the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But of Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Let's pray. Lord God, you're the one who inspired the scriptures. They were breathed out by you, and holy men of God wrote them as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as you're the one that has inspired this text, certainly you are the one who has complete and total understanding of it. And so we pray that I would be moved out of the way and just be a vessel for your glory and for your spirit to work through, Lord, that today I wouldn't come with uh, wisdom of words and wise speech, but in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power. Lord, we pray that you would help us to embrace the mysteries of election and predestination and your foreknowledge. Uh, but Lord, where you've shown us things to get our juices flowing and to get our interests and minds set on you, that you could be worshiped and glorified, we pray that you'd prompt us to that worship today for your glory, for your fame, God. We pray for love, we pray for grace, we pray for mercy, and Lord, we even pray for your justice in this room today. And we all said in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Go ahead and have a seat. As we've been in Romans chapter 9, we've been diving into the tension between man's, so or man's sovereignty, definitely is tension there. Uh, excuse me, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We've looked the last two weeks at that God is sovereign. He has absolute and complete control. And yet something else that we see in scripture is that man is responsible, which brings up the topic of free will. Now there's something that we need to know when we speak of free will is that there's actually no such thing as absolute freedom of the will, okay? Absolute freedom of the will. Number one, because that would mean that God is absolutely contingent and dependent upon us. Secondly, when speaking of absolute freedom of the will, it would mean that our will is not influenced by anything else, we know that that's not true because the reason that we're here in this building has been influenced by the men that built this building. And so there's just not an absolute freedom of will in that to the deepest degree of the saying. And thirdly, because of sin, um, we are no longer complete and total free agents. Uh, in our free choice, we can make choices, but our wills are tainted by Sin, And so a better term, a biblical term, would be human responsibility 
okay? Or our voluntary will. Human responsibility or voluntary will. Now, in one camp of this tension and of this debate, God is seen as simply a spectator. And the believers more as deists. On the other hand of the tension, God is seen more as a dictator. Now, on both sides of the tension, on both sides of the argument, are people and men and women that absolutely love Jesus. He is their Lord. He is their Savior. And in their attempts to reconcile these two points, they tend to water down one in favor of the other. They tend to water down God's responsibility in favor of or God's sovereignty in favor of man's responsibility, or they water down man's responsibility in favor of God's sovereignty. But as we're faithful to the text of the word of God and praise God that we just go verse by verse through the scripture, which moves us to tackle the tough subjects in scripture, here we are and we want to be faithful to the text. And the text of the scripture would uphold both truths, God's divine sovereignty and man's responsibility and voluntary will. In Spurgeon's sermon on the topic, he says, The great controversy, which for many ages has divided the Christian church, has hinged upon the difficult question of the will. I need not say that the conf- uh, of the conflict that it has done much mischief to the Christian church. Undoubtedly, it has. But I would rather say that it is much fraught with incalculable usefulness. For it has thrust forward before the minds of Christians precious truths, which but for it might have been kept in the shade. I believe that the two great doctrines of human responsibility and divine sovereignty have both been brought out the more prominently in the Christian church by the fact that there's a class of strong-minded, hard-hearted men who magnify sovereignty at the expense of responsibility and another and earnest and useful class who uphold and maintain human responsibility, oftentimes at the expense of divine sovereignty. I believe there is a needs be for this in the finite character of the human mind While the natural lethargy of the church requires a kind of healthy irritation to arouse her powers and to stimulate her exertions, the pebbles in the living stream of truth are worn smooth and round by friction. What Spurgeon is saying there is no doubt there's been conflict, and that conflict has divided churches. But within the conflict, God is sovereignly using it to get our juices flowing and to interest us in the depths of God that he has revealed to us so that he might be worshipped in the way that he expects us to worship him in this earth. And praise God as we wrestle through this and as the last, you know, many months have been me reading and stressing, you know, and listening and reading books and ordering books on Amazon and listening and, you know, and discussions uh, that I, I do feel like that pebble that he spoke of that has had some rough edges hewn down. Maybe a little bit more of a shine as I've lost some hair through the process. 
Some brethren have altogether forgotten one order of truths, and then in the next place, they've gone too far with the others, Spurgeon goes on to say. And so we want to have a biblical perspective that is a balanced perspective, and yet not a compromising perspective. Truth is suffered on all sides. One hand, people don't see the truth, and on the other side, they magnify it out of proportion what they have seen, similar to going into the mirror house in a carnival, you know, and you've got your feet that look like giant clown feet, and you've got a head that looks like the size of a mouse head, you know, and there's just disproportion to it uh, when we magnify certain truths over other truths. But as we look at Romans 9 today, we're going to see that the work of salvation rests upon the will of God and does not rest upon the will of man. A second thing that we'll see, which is an equally sure doctrine, is that the will of man has a proper position within the work of salvation and is not to be ignored. Charles Simeon said that these two camps of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like two wheels of a machine in a factory. And one wheel goes one direction, working hard to produce a product. And on the other side is a wheel that goes the other way, working hard. I don't know if I can do that. Working hard. Okay, so anyways, that analogy falls flat here from the pulpit today. Uh, But as both sides are working hard, connected by a shaft in the middle, they are producing a product that is good and beautiful and profitable. J.I. Packer has called this tension an antimony or an antimony, which are two truths that lay side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, and yet upholding one another. We have these kinds of antimonies within nature, within light, how we've known that light has both particles and waves. And we don't know how both particles and waves can be true and and consist together. But we know that they're not rival alternatives, but they actually complement each other. And so today as we go through Romans 9 and next week as we go through the chapter, my job is not to resolve the tension, but rather to retain the tension and to look at both sides of the tension as the, as the text lays the scaffolding. Douglas Moo says, we need perhaps to be more cautious in our formulations and to insist on the absolute criticality and meaningfulness of the human decision to believe at the same time we rightly make God's choosing of us ultimately basic. Such a double emphasis may strain the boundaries of logic, it does not, I trust, break them, or remain unsatisfyingly complex, but it may have the virtue of reflecting Scripture's own balanced perspective. John Stott, a man that I've been reading much through the book of Acts and the book of Romans, says, Many mysteries surround the doctrine of election, and theologians are unwise to systemize it in such a way that no puzzles, enigmas, or loose ends are left. 
At the same time, election is a doctrine taught by Jesus himself. As Jesus says, I know those whom I've chosen. C.S. Lewis says, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are both two pillars of the faith that rise up into the heaven and meet somewhere before the throne of God. We have such scriptures like John 3.16, if only one of you had it memorized here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This verse seems to stress man's responsibility within salvation of believing. Not a work, but rather a surrender, a act of faith. On the other hand, you have John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so we have these two tensions. As one man said, at the door of salvation, outside, written across the top, says, whosoever will. And as the Christian walks through the doors, he turns around and sees, written on the backside of the door, the phrase, chosen from the foundation of the earth. Chosen from the foundation of the earth. Whosoever will. And yet there's a group that have been chosen from the foundation of the earth. Wayne Grudem said, we can honestly say that we choose to respond to Christ while also say that it was in ways that we do not fully understand ordained by God. And so the topic here in Romans chapter 9 is, can God be just and fair in his sovereign election? Okay, so from verse 14, which is where we pick up today, can God be just and fair in his sovereign election? And we will see that God is absolutely just in his choosing. Now, Paul has just explained to the Romans readers the promises of the gospel can still be trusted. And though the majority of the privileged Jewish people are experiencing wrath, for rejecting the Messiah, he explains in verse 6 that not all Israel, speaking of physical Israel, born of the loins of Abraham, not all Israel is Israel, which speaking of the spiritual Israel. You see that at the end of verse 6. Paul says rather that the true Israel are people who are not only of the genealogy of Abraham from the loins and from the seed, from the blood of Abraham, but they're really from the spiritual lineage of Abraham being justified by faith, just like their father Abraham believed in God and it was accounted to, uh, to him for righteousness, so will his spiritual children, so will spiritual Israel Believe in God and it will be accounted to them for righteousness. Like Romans 4.11 says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe, though they're uncircumcised, 
that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So when was it that Abraham was justified? Justified in the sight of the Lord when he believed. Not when he was circumcised. Not when the law, which would come 400 years later, came to pass. But it was the moment he believed in God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so Paul has used in chapter 9 two examples from the Old Testament to make his point that there can be two Israels, a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. And that just as God selected Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over his twin brother Esau, though they all had the blood of Abraham, so he can sovereignly select according to his foreknowledge and the good pleasure of his will, those who will be part of the spiritual Israel. We saw in this section, verses 6 through 13, that this election, this sovereign election, has nothing to do with their works. As you see there in verse 11, these children hadn't been born. They hadn't done anything good or evil. That the purpose of God, according to election, might Stand. It had nothing to do with their works. It had nothing to do with man's power. It had nothing to do with earthly qualities that would make them preferable. Whether they were red or hairy or skinny and bald, you know, had nothing to do with those outward attributes or characteristics, but it was all about grace, nothing to do with race. And this just embraces and solidifies and lifts up the glorious chorus of the book of Romans that salvation, being saved, being right with God, having relationship with God is not by works or by fulfilling the law, but it is by, it's a big G word, grace through faith. You guys are getting it. And so let's look at verse 14. Paul's laid all this out. He's just talked about the choosing of Isaac over Ishmael. These guys had two different moms, same dad. One was chosen, the son of promise through Sarah, Isaac, right? Then he goes on and he talks about choosing Jacob over Esau. Now these guys had the same dad, same mom, same sperm, same uterus, and were born on the same day, but one was chosen. One was shown preference. The other was rejected. And so the question arises, verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. I want you to note today that any salvation is mercy and compassion. It's not justice, okay? We gotta brand that, we gotta sizzle that, we've got to sear that into our heart and into our mind. Any person that is saved and will be in heaven on that day, it is because of God's mercy, it is because of God's compassion. It is not because of his justice, okay? If it were because of his justice, 
then we would all be in hell. Okay? In justness, God would have shown us all wrath, every last one of us, but Jesus. Now, in keeping with the style of Paul's letter, Paul likes to anticipate the reactions of his readers, and he likes to answer their questions before they even ask it. And he's asking, is God's choosing an election unfair? Or more severely, is it unjust? Is God's choosing wrong? Is it even criminal on God's part, as the severe critic would say? And as Paul often does, the question is immediately answered with an emphatic, certainly not. As Spurgeon says, Think you that he has abdicated the throne of grace? Does he reign in creation and not in grace? Is he absolute, absolute king over nature and not over the greatest works of the new nature? Is he lord over the things which his hand made at first and not king over the great regeneration, the new making wherein he makes all things new? All the inhabitants of the earth are re reputed as nothing, he does according to his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What dost thou? God is the king over creation. He's in control. He is sovereign. And as much as he's in control of everything else in the, in the world and in his justice and in his grace, so is he in control of one of the greatest acts that he does, the great act of regeneration. And he is just in that great act. As Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. You know, Paul is going to say in this section, before we open our little mouths in questioning God with a rebellious heart, that we should look at who he is in his essence and in his attributes and in his character. All of his works are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Revelation 16, 17, during the great tribulation period, a voice from the altar cries out, Even so, Lord God, almighty, true, and righteous are your judgments. This is spoken forth during a time of tribulation and wrath that God is pouring out upon a Christ-rejecting world. It's a time that Jesus says the world has never seen and will never see after it. And unless the Lord shortened the days of his wrath being poured out, no flesh would survive. And yet, in the midst of all of this outpouring of wrath, a voice comes from the altar and says, Even so, true and righteous are your judgments. As Job says, Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. And so, <clears throat> is there unrighteousness with God? We shouldn't have even have had to have that question answered by Paul. We should have all said, as Rory was reading it, certainly not. <laughs> Simmer down, people. And the explanation why, for certainly not, follows in verse 15. For he says to Moses, 
I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. As Piper says, this is a very puzzling argument for the righteousness of God in sovereign election. It sounds like a restatement of the sovereign election rather than an argument that his sovereign election is righteous. I mean, do you guys see much of an argument in this? Like, oh, that, okay, yeah. No, he, he is. He's restating God's electing ability and his electing rights. This is a quote from Exodus 33, verse 18 and 19, when Moses says to the Lord, please show me your glory. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So as, Paul, as Moses says, I want to see your glory, God says, I'm going to show you my name, and here is the essence of my name. I am not dependent on anybody but myself, and I will be gracious to whomever I will be gracious to, and I will have mercy on whomever I'll have mercy on, and it's me, not man. It's grace, not race. It's grace, not works. I'm not dependent or totally contingent on anyone or anything, and in my name, I am. I am who I am who I am, who I am, <laughs> and I'm sovereign. In Exodus 34, 6 through 9, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. And here we see him having mercy on whom he'll have mercy. He's long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses bowed, he made haste and bowed to the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I've found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your inheritance." Even as God speaks forth his justice and his mercy, his mercy and his compassion, Moses isn't hindered from pleading for that mercy, pleading for that pardon of iniquity and of sin. Now, it's because of the sacrifice of Jesus that our guilt is pardoned. It's because of the shed blood of the Son of God that we have found mercy as we sing the song, Our sin weighed upon His shoulders, my soul now to stand. God's justice and mercy in a paradox and an antimony is found at the cross. When his justice is poured out upon his son so that any vessel of wrath can be made a vessel of mercy. And at the same time, his mercy 
and his compassion is shown at the cross. Micah says, who's God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the, transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. So in grace, let us rest assured that he is king, willing to do as he pleases, having mercy on whom he will have mercy and having compassion on whom he has compassion and calling whom he chooses to call, quickening whoever he wants to quicken, fulfilling even against man's hard heart, despite man's willful rejection of Christ, he fulfills his own purposes, his own decrees, without even one of them falling to the ground. And he has the right to exercise this justice. He has the right to exercise mercy and compassion. And in that, the grace of God is preserved. The only claim that any one of us has on God is his justice. And believe me, you don't want that. I've found that one of the problems that I have in this tension is that for some reason, we tend to think God owes us salvation or we deserve to be saved. And we constantly default to that. And I'm talking every minute we default to that. And we remind ourselves with the gospel that we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve heaven. But we deserve wrath. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. Every one of us for all eternity. Verse 16. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. First of all, what is it? What is it? Besides a really scary movie from the 80s. What's the it here in verse 16? Straight from the text would be going back to verse 11. It is God's purpose according to election. That God's electing purpose does not depend on human will or exertion. In John 1.12, we've gone to this verse every week. Because in it you see a cog turning one way, or, or a wheel turning one way, and a wheel turning the other way. As many have received him, it's just a response to his grace. To them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So we have man receiving and believing. But then in verse 13, we see that we were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is the initiator of salvation. He calls us. He chooses he gets the ball rolling. In fact, he is the ball. <laughs> and all we do is let that ball slam into us. We just receive. We just respond. We just surrender. As a beggar on the side of the road, 
is confronted with a, a billionaire who writes a check for a million dollars to this beggar. And the beggar receives the million dollars. No glory goes to the beggar. He did nothing meritorious or glorifying to deserve this favor of the rich man. All ounce of glory goes to the wealthy individual. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. There's no work that we get to brag about what we've done, our exertion, our genealogy, our heritage, our bloodline, our good looks, whatever. We got nothing. It is completely his gift. The mercy he extends is not based upon human power or exertion, but the unmerited, unearned, free grace of God. As Romans 4, 1 through 5 says, what do we say about Abraham, our father, is found according to the flesh? What what good attributes did he have that got him saved? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed. God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The promises that God were promising could not be done at all by Abraham. He had to simply believe God, and it was accounted into his account to to be righteousness. Now listen to this in verse 4. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt, If we were to work for our salvation in any way, if there was anything in us that we thought we made ourselves get there, then God would be owing us salvation. God owes no man anything. It goes on to say, but to him who does not work, but believes, you guys see two different things here. You got working and you've got believing. Believing is not a work. We just believe on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. And so the act of salvation in a man is first and foremost, according to the will of God. He is the initiator. He is not totally contingent on anyone or anything. And yet, the responsibility of man has a proper place in the picture. Now, one of the sides of the debate uh, has been known as the Arminian Arminian camp. And uh, according to the Arminian theory, they would say that salvation depends upon our own will. You have, first of all, this difficulty to meet that you have made the purpose of God in the great plan of salvation entirely contingent, as Spurgeon says. You have put an if upon everything. And even when the souls are saved by it, according to that theory, the efficacy, I say, lies not in the blood itself, but in the will of man who gives it 
power. And hence, it is a great confirmation of the truth that it depends upon the will of God, that it is God that chooses and not man. It's God who takes the first step and not the creature. As we look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Man, the theme of Ephesians are the riches of God being poured out on us by grace. Okay, Just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us acceptable in the beloved. Now what we see in verses 3 through 6 here are basically a double word. A double word. We see that it's according to the, uh, the will of his will, essentially is what's being said here. That we would be saved. It's according to the will of his will. It's a very strong expression showing the entire absoluteness of this thing depending upon God. Then you jump to verse 9 of Ephesians 1. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposes in himself. And so more of this gathering together of the saved Here is according to the counsel of his will. And then verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things. Here it is again, according to the counsel of his will. It's a stronger expression than of his will. It it speaks of his free will, his unbiased will, his will alone. Redemption, Ephesians 1 tells us, it's according to the will of God, okay? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 tells us that even our sanctification and our continuation in this journey of being adventurously conformed into the image of Christ, that even that is by his will. And later on in the book, Paul says that even our glorification is by his will. And so within the scriptures, you can't get away from God's sovereign will. It's there. And we love it. We don't need to shy away from it. Woo, praise God that he is willing things. Praise God that he has willed the salvation of the lost. And any saving act that he does is mercy on his part. Any just act or judgment is deserved on our part. And that would be wrath. Verse 17 says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, is it really 1140? How did that happen? It happened, didn't it? Don't be like that. You know you want to go home. Just kidding. All right. Well, we're not going to end there. I'll just tell you that much. Verse 17. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Let's look at Exodus 9, 14. At this time, I'll send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there's none like me in all the earth. Now, if I'd stretched out my hands and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. So we have the beginning of God's dealings with Israel sending all of his plague, or excuse me, against Egypt, against Pharaoh, sending all of his plagues upon Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart becoming harder and harder and harder according to the purpose of God, verse 17 tells us. And we see this all throughout scripture. We see it with a character named Cyrus, who was the leader of the Persians and the Medes of the Persians, King Cyrus, back in the days of Daniel. And Isaiah in chapter 45, Isaiah prophesies of Cyrus that he would go and he would overthrow the Babylonians. This was, let's see if I can see it here. This was prophesied 150 years before Cyrus was born, 180 years before Cyrus had performed any of the prophesied feats, and he did end up performing all of them, and 80 years before the Jews were taken into exile. So a radical uh, prophecy here, that uh, has a probable chance of fulfillment of 1 in 10 to the 15th power. And you want to know what's incredible about it is in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 1, Cyrus is called by name 150 years before he's even born. That he would be the king of the Medes and the Persians overthrowing the Babylonians who were holding Israel, Judah rather, captive. So we see this all throughout scripture. We see Alexander the Great being prophesied. We see Judas Iscariot being prophesied that he would be the close friend of the Messiah and he would betray him. And yet biblically, Judas Iscariot is not some hopeless victim of predestination, but was a man that made real choices and was accountable for those real choices. And yet God meant it. God purposed it, and God willed it. And so Pharaoh is used as an example, as Cyrus is, as, as Alexander the Great, as Judas Iscariot, as the non-elect we see in Scripture. Verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. And so this is along with the Exodus account of the plagues in Egypt and Moses' interaction with Pharaoh. And as you read through these chapters, chapters 7 through 10 in Exodus, it's very interesting because you see both man's responsibility in Pharaoh hardening his own heart and God's sovereignty in God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, it's so good to study these things because 
we get reminded of things, okay? And, and I had been thinking for so long that every interaction was Pharaoh hardened his heart, then the next plague would come, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then the next plague would come, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then the next plague would come, and Pharaoh would harden his heart. And after 10 plagues, finally God validated that hardness of heart, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I've taught that. And I've even read through that and seen that. Until this time reading through it again. And looking at original words. Looking at the uh, tenses of the words and such. And what we see is a mixture of both and some throughout the whole account. We have Pharaoh hardening his own heart. We have God before any of the plagues saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And then we'll have God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And then we'll have Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And then we'll have a language that doesn't express either one of them doing it, but Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Three different words with all sorts of different stems and, um, and uh, tenses, Hafil stems and infinitive tens and passive and imperfect and perfect, right? Right? But what we see is the mystery and the truth all within this section. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. But the right question really is, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did God force Pharaoh to do something that he didn't want to do and then punish him for it? As one pastor said, that would be like a dad, an abusive father, grabbing his son from across the table and dragging him across the table and spilling the milk and he throws his son against the wall and then he spanks his son for spilling the milk. A comparable statement. And yet God is loving. God is not abusive. God is just. God is compassionate. God is merciful. And what we see with the Pharaoh account is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart with mercy and with compassion. And just by showing up in Pharaoh's life and pleading with him ten different times, in God's mercy, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Now remember, Pharaoh wasn't a good, you know, passive person. Pharaoh was a wicked, evil, sinful man. And this hardening happened when his rebellious heart came in contact with the word of God. And human hearts are hardened the same way. God's mercy is given to those who don't deserve it. His hardening is to those who already deserve judgment. Dr. Leon Morris rightly comments, neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened himself. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Or the New Living Translation. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? Didn't Pharaoh just do what God had predetermined for him to do? Didn't Judas Iscariot just do what God had predetermined for him to do? 
And how can Jesus say it would be better for him if he would never have been born? He's the one that created him. These are the questions that are being asked here in Romans. In verse 20 he says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? We will be closing very shortly. In fact, we can have the worship team come up right now just to prove it to you guys. How's that? (laughs) Forcing my hand. Okay. Come on up, you guys. Paul uses this example that's birthed out of the book of Isaiah, which is between the potter and the clay. And what this does is it emphasizes the distance between God and man by using an analogy of a rebellious heart trying to dictate what God can do. And I told you guys that as we went through this chapter, you have to be okay with cliffhangers, okay? You have to be okay with, come back next week to be continued, okay? Because this is deep and we have to roll up our sleeves and, and hunker down and strap our hard-working boots on and do the, do the footwork. But in all of this, as we look at Pharaoh, as we look at God sovereignly working in Pharaoh and sovereignly hardening Pharaoh, is God just in it? He is absolutely just. If there's anybody saved, they're saved by grace and they're saved by mercy. If anybody is condemned, they're condemned by justice because they are vessels of wrath. And they're storing up for themselves wrath, chapter 2 of Romans says. Wrath in the day of wrath. Well, I don't like that. We close with verse 20. Shall the thing formed say to him who formed it why are you doing it this way why are you doing it this way as we close in worship let's just go ahead and set our bible aside and and just allow the holy spirit to thread these things together The conclusion that we see is at the end of verse 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you've come to this place today, not a Christian, You've come to this place, just a vessel of wrath, a sinner, destined for judgment. And God has spoken forth to you and called to you through the gospel. He's communicated to you that you are a sinner and you will not be saved by your works or by your merit. But if anyone is saved, they are saved by the grace of God. It's been spoken to you today that if you receive and believe in him, you will be saved. You will not perish, but you will have everlasting life. 
To those who receive, he is granted for you to be a children of God. And if you begin right now to have any want of that, I want that. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. Right now, if you're sensing that, it is because God wants you to be saved. Any will that you have in your heart right now has been placed there by our sovereign God, by your creator. And if you would hear his voice today, Hebrews 3 and 4 tell us, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. If you would hear his voice today saying, look, see how I've loved you. See how my justice and my mercy are both on full display at the cross as I demonstrate my love for you. Sending my only son to be slain, to be slashed, to be pierced. That if you would believe on his sacrifice, you won't perish, but have everlasting life. Revelation says, let him who thirsts come and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. If you desire salvation, if you desire forgiveness of your sins, come, come today and drink deeply from the waters of salvation. Receive today the billion dollar check from him who wills you to have it by his grace. He has brought you to this place on one of the most difficult chapters in the scripture so that you could see his great love for you and that you could run into the fortress of his choosing you and of his willing you to be saved. If you want it right now, he wants you and drink and receive and gulp right now. As we come to the communion table, we take the cup that represents his blood shed for your sins so that your blood doesn't need to be shed for your sins. And you drink of that cup and say, hallelujah, Jesus, for saving me. And you take of the bread and you chew it, and you receive it, and you enjoy it, because it represents his flesh being utterly ripped apart so that yours wouldn't need to be. And it's by grace that you could drink today. It's by grace that you could eat today. And he's over it. And we worship him. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.